Hi, morning, it's Wednesday. Still in the middle of this corona season. Uh, I wanted to do uh, a talk about the Vartanura. I found it this week or next week or something. I think this week is his uh, yard site. And uh, that's somebody I can sink my teeth into. Uh, this podcast we're doing today, by the way, is being sponsored by the Miller family here in Baltimore for a full shlema for... Uh, the Mrs. Nami Dvorbas Fratchen. Fratchen is Fredel Fratchen in Old German. Um, and by their uh, relatives here and sons-in-law and so forth, all wonderful people. They should have over for Shlema. As I said, I asked around and I see that um, there are two names that came to my notice. One I hope to do today and the other one next week. Uh, Mr. Bartonura, who is kind of fun to talk about. Um, but I don't know if people know the biographical information. We're all familiar, more or less, with the Bartonura. By the way, I'm referring to the man, not the wine. <laughs> Just to watch out, you got to remember where you are these days. Uh, i got nothing against Bartonura wine, but that's not what we're talking about. Now, this is uh, an Italian rabbi who, had he died at the age of 50, would be totally unknown. Uh, some people, life begins with them, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe 40. Uh, the second half of the life is the, is the big deal. It makes you famous or not. Uh, so we're dealing with somebody from the... It's just very interesting. It's Italy in the 15th century. You know, most of you have no idea what I'm talking about because uh, you probably have no secular education in terms of history. Italy in the 15th century is the Renaissance. That's it. <laughs> That's when the Renaissance happened. In the 1400s. And uh, the Jews, this is before the Jews were kicked out of Spain. So the Sephardim are in Spain. They're not in Italy. And so what you had at that time was an Italian peninsula that we have today, of course, with a whole bunch of different countries in it that I've spoken in these podcasts about many times. And more or less, Italy was divided into three-thirds the bottom third was called the Kingdom of Naples. The middle third was called the Papal States. And then you have like 10, 15 countries in the upper third. And in the time of the Bartonur, in the 1400s, the Jews lived all over these places. But it was difficult. There was a lot of anti-Semitism in Italy. And um, we're dealing with the Italian style. But as I've said in previous talks, Italy is a mishmash. You have all different types of Jews even before the Sephardim showed up. And the bartender is going to be a great example of this. Oops, fell down. Uh, wait a second. Yeah, I'm sorry. My phone fell down. Anyway, uh, imagine very small communities scattered all over Italy. So every Jewish community is 20, 30 families, maybe. You know what I'm saying? Now, there's a couple exceptions, but even when you have a couple exceptions, it's 100 families, maybe 200 families, or something like that, you know? Not big. There's shows. Many shows have more than that. They're small places. And there's the Italiani Jews, mainly from Rome, and those types of things. And then there are the Ashkenazi Jews, who are moving into Italy in the 12, 13, 1400s. These are the two big, important groups. And our hero is from the Italiani Jews. 
He's born in Bartonura, which is an unknown place. It's a tiny little uh, place in uh, central Italy, in the Papal States. Uh, you know, like, who even knows where this stuff is? It's in Romagna, near Forli. Uh, if you know the history of the Renaissance, a lot of intrigues and murders and things was uh, in Forli by the Duchess of Forli and the, versus the Popes and the Borgias and the Medici and all the, all the intrigue and stuff, which are endless books and novels and movies, it all takes place in this time. And the Jews are living smack in the middle of all this. And one phenomenon you'd have is a small town with a couple of Jews. Why? The town doesn't like the Jews. So how would they go in there? The answer is the Jews filled a role that nobody else wanted to fill. And that is what we call pawn shops and pawn brokers and small um, loans. I've mentioned this before. Bartonura lives exactly in the middle of all this. You have a city, a city or town, and it needs, they're all Bagayim, they're all Catholic Italians. Everybody needs credit from time to time. You know, you always need to borrow some money here and there. You need a mortgage. You want to get this. You have to pay that. You have to borrow money. The question is, do you borrow responsibly or not? And obviously an old-fashioned borrowing, you have to have a mashkin, you know, collateral. Now, this means that every community, the lower classes, need a nickel and dime loans. So if I'm doing, if me, if I were giving out nickel and dime loans, how much money am I making on a nickel loan or a $10 loan? You know, it's bupkis. So unless I have the most unbelievable volume, I can't make any money. So the Italian loan sharks don't want to do this. That's called the Medici, understand? The big, the big families. Uh, they want to deal with loans to the middle classes and to the nobility. Because then you're not talking about nickel and dime loans. You're talking about $10,000, $50,000, $100,000, more, whatever. And then you can make some money on the interest. Now, technically, the Catholics are not supposed to charge interest. But they worked out, without going into details, they worked out their system of heterisco, the same way the Jews did. Mom's in the same centuries, by the way. You know, the big breakthrough is the Truman's edition. He's in Germany in the 15th century. But I'll put that aside. Now, um, so what would happen is that groups of Jews would approach a town uh, in Italy and they say, you know, listen, let's make a deal. We need to uh, move somewhere and make a living. And you have a situation in which you need a certain amount of nickel and dime loans and pawnbroking and things like that. So if you give us a condota, a contract, which will spell out, you know, so and so many Jews can live here and they can charge so and so much interest and they're get, and you know they have to pay so and so much taxes and return they have a cemetery and a synagogue, the dimensions are spelled out, you know, that was the life of those days. And our hero, Vadia Bartanura, was exactly from that business. All right? From the very heart of Italy, near, not too far from the Adriatic. It probably doesn't mean anything to you. Anyhow, um, it came from from family. And obviously, a, a, a family with some scholarship. But the Iker point is, he's born in the 1440s, 1450s, not clear to the historians. Smack in the middle of the, uh, of the 1400s, 15th century. And when he's a young guy, teenager, there is a yeshiva not far away. Because these little Italian communities, I've told you before and before, are small, but in some place they had a high quality. 
And it so happens where he was, it's not too far away from Bologna. And at that time, you know, we get Bologna from. So, and the Bologna not only had an important Jewish community, this foreigner lived there, for example, but they had the yeshiva Maharik. We also call him Maharik. Maharik is one of the biggest uh, post-Gedolim of the 15th century. In fact, a good part of the Shulchan Aruch was taken from the Marik. Go take a look at the uh, notes on the side, in the Ramah and even in the Mechaber. You understand? Rabbi Yosef Karad, wrote the Shulchan Aruch in the 1500s. One of the sources they had in front of him was the Shalos and Shubas of Marik. Now, Marik is a funny guy. He is from France. Most of us listening probably were Ashkenazi Jews, mostly. And Ashkenazi usually say, well, it's Eastern European mostly, but they got from Germany. So the Ashkenazi is associated with Germany. But actually, the original Ashkenazi was France. And they moved from France into Germany. I'm talking about the time of Rashi. So it was France and the Rhineland. Um, so there's a distinctive form of French Ashkenazi Jewry. The only thing is, since the Catholic Church crushed the French Jews in the 1200s, and that's the end of the Balitosas and all the rest of it, so for the most part, the main gravity of Torah scholarship and population shifted in the 12-1300s from France to Germany. that we say today, Ashkenazi think of Germany. But the original was France, and there are French uh, distinctive styles, I'm just for specialists, there are French distinctive styles of learning, Paskening Shilas, Minhagim, Piyutim, and all that kind of business, which is French Ashkenazi. If you want an example, what I'm talking about, going back to the time of Rashi, Rashi died in 1106, so his student, Rabbi Simcha Vitri, wrote the Machzer Vitri. The Machzer Vitri is basically a kind of a Shulchan Aruch, you might say, or a compendium of French Ashkenazi Judaism. So this is old, old stuff. Now, most of the Jews who kicked out of France, as I say, in the 1200s, early 1300s, some hung on till the late 1300s in South France, without going into too many details. And then eventually they were kicked out of there and they went to Italy. So Marik, Marik is from that Kufa. His father was a Talmud Chacham from France, France, not Germany. And he brought his Torah knowledge and all that to Italy. And uh, our hero, which is uh, Vadya Bartanur, is therefore going to be taught mainly by his very interesting Rebbe. He was a Gadolador. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, everything that goes along with Gadolador, but it's the French Ashkenazic style. And he's an Italian boy learning that. So it's just an interesting mixture. Uh, but you'll see why I mentioned this later on when he, when he writes the Bartanura. Now, um, and by the way, the Rambam's very big in their world also, but they're French Ashkenazic. Now, once he finished learning under the Marik, and by the way, he's in the Marik. Uh, it's kind of famous, uh, for those who are interested in this sort of thing, it's just cute. If you look in the Chubis Marik, which is one of the first Hebrew books ever published, because it's Italian, all the Hebrew books are published in Italy, um, you'll see there's a Shaila to Avadia Bartanuro about a family that wrote a Sefer Torah, and then, of course, they had Achnasa Sefer Torah, and they brought it to their local synagogue. That's what people do. But basically, he said, I guess, it's still our Torah. <laughs> We're just keeping it in the show. And then when the original guy died, the community claimed it's theirs, and the family claimed it's theirs. He had a fight. And 
Bartuna was involved in this, and they send it up, and there was a big fight in the town, and they send it upstairs to the Marik. He says, you know, whatever you Paskin, and he came out in favor of the family. Uh, and this ruling of the Marik, by the way, to the Bartunura is incorporated in Shulchan Aruch, in uh, Archaim in 153, where there's the rules about basic Knesset. So, you know, old Jewish uh, kind of stuff. Now, I want to say one thing about the Marik, because it has an important influence, in my opinion, on the Bartonura. Mark was a big guy, and he started out small when he first moved to Italy. Like is the case of many refugees, the best job he could have would be a first or second grade rabbi. I'm serious. Same thing happened in this country after the Second World War. A lot of people came over from this yeshiva, that yeshiva, couldn't speak English. Best job they could get was second, third grade, even though they could really be a maggot cheer somewhere. That's life. And um, eventually, luck changed for the Maharik, and he ended up having big yeshiva in Mantua, which was a large Jewish community. Trouble is, there was another guy there, Yehuda Messer Leon, who also had yeshiva there, and then he ended up having a civil war. So this is almost to the point of ridiculous. It's a small town. Even Mantua is a larger city by Italian standards, but it wasn't that big of a population, not by today. It's a joke. And Jewish community was definitely small, it's before ghettos, but still, it's a Jewish neighborhood. So imagine a small Jewish neighborhood with two yeshivas. I don't know how big they were. And the two guys end up with a massive fight. And it started to be fist fights and stuff like that. A lot of fist fights in Italy, in Italian Jewry. And uh, by the time it's over, the prince, of Ma the Duke of Mantua, kicked them both out of town. Okay? So it's Mamash Sotan Rocket Binayim. You could have had, you know, near Israel and Schlangers, as they say in Baltimore. And instead, because of fights that broke out between these two big people, both yeshivas ceased to exist, and they were both uh, kicked, literally kicked out of town, okay, by the cops. So the reason I'm mentioning this, and so what happened with the Arik is he had to go and get a much smaller job in Pavia, where, fortunately, he died before the big battle there in the 1520s, uh, which destroyed so much. So... Points like this, watch out for Machlokas. I mention it because, in my opinion, one of the interesting things about the Bartonur is he's always very able and very successful in steering clear Machlokas. Uh, come one of his interesting characteristics and a key to his success in life. Now, he himself, Avadi Bartonur, after he finished learning Yeshiva, came back to uh, his little town and ended up uh, moving to another town. You know, you don't have to know the name of these little stupid little Italian cities. Uh, they're really small places. And uh, he ended up, uh, let me put it this way. He has a very good rabbinic education, but he also must have come from a family of these lone, you know, small nickel and dime loan guys. And it's a, a malacha. And if you learn it well, listen closely to what I'm saying. It's like anything else. If you learn it well, you can turn it into a moneymaker. It's not easy. You have to be very frugal. You have to, uh, you know, take whatever little profits you make on the nickel and dime stuff and invest them successfully. If you play your cards right and you kiss up properly to the local city guys and the Christian guys, you might get permission to move from nickel and dime uh, loans to uh, $5 and $10 and $20 loans, you know, so to speak. Notice you might move up a little bit and make a little more money. And that's was the career path for Jewish uh, businessmen, bankers, in Italy in the 15th, 16th century, that, if you want to be Maslich, that's, that's what you did. And 
he got into that business because clearly he didn't want to be a rabbi and live off the salary, which there is none, or hardly. And so, uh, he, you know, like many people, had a little bit of money and he, and, he, and he was successful working the business. The reason I mention this is because we have records that were discovered not long ago by Professor Toaf in, uh, in, in Israel, the real jerk. But anyway, uh, he's the guy who said the Jews are the blow libel. But whatever the case is, he's Italian. He did the um, work. And uh, Avadi Bartonor is one of the people that the Pope gives permission to, to operate a loan bank. And others operate a business in this and this town and charge so and so much interest. And he has special permission, like these bankers, not to work on Saturdays and Jewish holidays. It's one of those condotas that I spoke about before. And you see from all this that the Bartonura, you know, was a businessman. Now, what I mean by that is he's mainly a guy in learning, but he also made a living. And the reason I mention it is because I've spoken before. It's very interesting. There's a certain type of gadol. You know, they're all different types. A certain type of gadol has a business background. And what that does is it forces you to be very masutter and organized. Because in those days, to run a business, you had to keep your accounts. Uh, especially these, these small banks, you were like everything. You're the bank president. You're the chief clerk. You're the teller. You're every, you know, keep the records. And there are um, a whole culture of Shilas and Sfarim that were obscure on the laws, both Jewish-wise and otherwise, of running these uh, little banks, these little um, uh, lending uh, institutions. Uh, I have in front of me, tall off my shelf, from Professor Bonfil, who's the big historian. He's an Italian, from guy Italian um, Jewish history. He's the man. And he you, and he published a book from this Kufa called Sefer Malva Velova, Madrich Lamashkanot, me Italian, me Mea Renaissance. That it, and those is an old Sefer in which they deal with the halachas of borrowing and lending and all that stuff. Um, with all the rules and regulations that have to be taken into account, the data, the Malchusa stuff, the Chosha Mishpah stuff, uh, the common sense things. And so to be a su- success in this business, just like you would imagine to run any bank, you have to be a very Masudah mind. And of course, we'll see that Bartonura is famous for being very Masudah and very clear, very uh, one, one of the best writers in Jewish history. One of the best writers, I say, in Jewish history. And so Clark, a very big uh, um, part of him, now, uh, he's running this business, <clears throat> and that means that he is a member of what I would call the lower uh, elite of Italy. Uh, he's not poor. Remember that. He's not poor. Uh, he's not a millionaire, you know, like the big guys. The big guys are the ones who deal with the Medici and the others in Florence. But he knows them, and he's friends with them. He does business with them. And so, and he's a big Talmud Chacham, big Talmud Chacham. And so he's, he's really a member of the Italian Jewish elite, such as existed. And because he was a real Talmud Chacham, he must have a nice personality. So he's not simply a member of the elite, but he's a person that, uh, you might say, very classy. You know what I'm saying? Very good character, very classy. And so he can operate in both spheres, in the world of business and in the world of Torah you know, and the rabbinate. Now, the world of Torah is a matter of lumdus, of scholarship. The rabbit is, you have to know how to get along with Balabatim. You have to be a good darshaner. You have to be, know how to um, 
organize the community. You have to uh, know how to avoid machlokas. You're going to have to kiss up to the important people without losing your integrity. It's a very interesting project, and he was able, obviously, to do that. Um, now, maybe he didn't like it, maybe he did. But this is what he did. Now, um, all this was is just interesting by way of a datum, you know, a little uh, uh, detail. I mean, eventually, he takes a job as a rov in the city of Chiata de Castello, but you never heard of that, you know. These are all little towns, like I say, in north-central Italy. Uh, but even if he's the rabbi there, I mean, the main thing, he's running this loan business, because that's how you make your living off the interest from the loans that you make to non-Jews within the framework of the permitted uh, laws in, in the papal states at that time, okay? Now, all that is just a quiet, regular life. For some reason, he decides at the age of 40, 50, yeah, you know, midlife crisis. When he has his midlife crisis, it expressed itself in desire, I'm going to make Aliyah and move to Israel. It's in the 1480s. People don't do that at that time. Well, some did, but barely. Uh, moving to Israel in the 15th century is not a pushed business at all, and I'll tell you why I say that. Here we're dealing with, with is, what happened in Israel in the second half of the Middle Ages. What I mean by that is the following. Israel, Palestine used to be part of the Arab Empire. The Arabs conquered in the 600s. And there were Jews living there. And then the Crusaders showed up in 1098. And they killed everybody, and then more people moved in when they changed their attitude. For example, the Rambam visited Israel, lived there for a while under the Crusaders in the late 1100s. In, in, in the 1100s. Uh, however, eventually, the Christians, the Crusaders, were all kicked out. Totally. It happened in 1270. And, uh, was it 1290, 1270? Well, one of them in 1200s, late 1200s. And the reason is because uh, Egypt became a world power. Egypt used to be ruled by the Arabs and they had their own independent Arab thing. But by the time I'm talking about, by the time you get to the 1200s, the power in Egypt was taken over by a certain class of slaves. Isn't that funny? The Arabs had different levels of slaves. Some were slave slaves, and some were military slaves. The slave slaves, you treat them like dirt. The military slaves, you know, they're like, I guess, uh, some version of mercenaries. Some version of that. And these can be called the Mamelukes, which the royal slaves. And skipping over a lot of history, by the time the process ended, the slaves took over. You know what I'm Because they had the military power. And they founded the Mamluk Kingdom of Egypt. And uh, for 200 years, uh, they conquered and ruled like the Middle East. The Mamluks, the, you know, the Egyptian Mamluks ruled Israel and Syria and Jordan and sometimes Iraq. You know, they're big, a piece of Turkey. It was a big power. Now, uh, by the way, they beat the Genghis Khan's, uh, you know, they were powerful. They beat the Mongols. And they set up the system of government. So Israel in the 1300s and in the 1400s was a province of Egypt. This has happened other times in history also. Now, it's okay with me. The Mamluks, notice they're the ones who took over from Saladin's dynasty, the Ayyubids. Now the Mongol, I'm sorry, the Mamluks, uh, they weren't particularly anti-Jewish, they're just regular Muslims. The Jewish are 
little piece of dirt, dirt, you know, but they can live here as long as they uh, pay the taxes and not act uppity and all that. You know, regular Muslim situation. And therefore, there were Jewish communities living in Israel in the 1300s. But the problem is that uh, the taxation system, the Mamluks sometimes got into big wars, and some of these rulers, they call them sultan, right? Sometimes the sultans were smarter, and sometimes not so smart. Now, what do I mean exactly by, by that? Taxation. Um, you have a war, it costs a lot of money. Now, you have to understand, Egypt has always been a rich place until the modern Arabs took it over. Rich place, because it's in the middle of Africa and Asia and Europe. You know what I mean? It's at the crossroads. It connects the Red Sea with the Mediterranean. Location, location, location. Egypt was a, 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 a vast uh, fortune. The population was poor, but the middle class and rich were rich. And the king was always rich, you know, from the trade. Now, um, which is described in great detail by the Bartonur, by the way. And um, the Jews in Israel, you can move there. But when you had a good ruler, they were moderate in taxation. When you had a bad ruler, they were heavy in taxation. What do I mean? If you need a lot of money, you might say like this, everybody has to pay 90% of their income in taxes, or, or I take your house away, or something like that. That's good for a, a, a short run, bad for the long run. Because nobody wants to live in a country where the government's going to act like that. So no businessman, no middle class person, no entrepreneur is going to want to live in your area, move, move away. And then you'll really lose the economically productive element. Your economy will crash. It'll be counterintuitive. This is like the Ronald Reagan vote, you know? If you, if you raise taxes too much, you hurt the economy. Um, if you raise too little, you don't have enough money. So the trick is to get it just right. So without going through a lot of history, in the 15th century, which is when the Bartonor lived, in the 1400s, especially in the middle 1400s, so the situation was such where the rulers needed a lot of money and they hit everybody up heavy for taxes. And the Jews living there in Israel, especially Yushalayim, uh, were hit with collective taxes. There was, a, you know, the Jewish community is taxed as a community, and therefore you give them a lump sum and they have to go and raise the money among themselves. Now, I'm asking you a question, oh, listener out there. Which is better for Jews? They should say everybody in ba the Jewish community in Baltimore should contribute $100 million in taxes here, and how you raise it is among yourselves? Or would it be better that every Jew in Baltimore gets hit, you know, for $10,000 a year in, in taxes, period. Now, because that's how it worked. So the answer is the second. Why do I say that? If you do the first, so then in real re reality, we'd hate it. Who, who's going to be the leaders of the Jewish community to decide how the money's going to be divided up? It'll be like, uh, you know, like day school uh, tuition boards times a thousand. They're going to assess people for this and that, and nobody's going to believe anything, and the worst people will will be matzliach, and in this kind of situation, your richy rich guys, especially the intriguers and the this, they they're the ones who flourish, and they end up destroying the other Jews. If you add to that a, um, if you add to that a a um, uh, what shall I say, a propensity. In those years especially, for uh, being Malshinim, 
this is a great uh, uh, curse that uh, was very prominent in the Arab countries all the time. There were always a lot of people in the Jewish community that were malshin, they told in others. And uh, all I can say is by the time you get to the middle of the 15th century, Israel was notorious for this. And everybody said the big problem with Israel is the Israelis. You understand? There's, from these years, a very famous letter from the Trumas Adeshen, who was the big Rabbi Nashkin as in, in Germany, in Austria. He was the man at the same time as the Marik. And a guy wrote to him, uh, a Bartonor type guy, I'm a well-to-do Jew living in Germany, I'd like to go and spend my life living in Eretz Yisrael. For the mitzvot, and learned there. And the uh, Trumas Adeshen famously says, it's obviously a big zechus to live in Israel. I believe, he knows, I believe in that too. But Kolsh came be ira kodesh, the tuelis olam haba olam hazeb. Omnum shamainu kama pomim, sheish sham bene bris mearavim, nechshabim, lershan gemurim. But I know from reports that the local Israelis are terrible. Lershan gemurim, most rima for some of them, they're big mosers, and lashan hara, and malshinim. And if an Ashkenazi Jew moves there, they eat him alive. And the economy is not good. So the number one problem you'll face if you move there are the Jews. The second problem you'll face are the Arabs. It's got to be individual conscience. Every person has a side for themselves. We're we'll be better to have a uh, a um, from life. And so basically, he was saying, stay in Germany and sit and learn here, uh, because he moved to Israel, be terrible. And he didn't want to say that. He said, I, "I'm sorry, I have to say that." So I'm only mentioning this is the matzah in Israel at that time, and as a result, he had excessive taxation in a communal form, which brought to the fore the worst elements in the Jewish community, and they ate the other guys alive. And uh, sometimes they killed them, sometimes they handed over to the Arabs to be uh, tortured, or put in prisons or dungeons and die a horrible death. This is Jew on Jew, all right? And so forth and so on. So for that reason, as you can see, a lot of people didn't want to move to Israel. Unless you were dirt poor. <laughs> now, um... Everything is mazel. When the Bartanur moves here, our hero, he decides to make Aliyah. He's obviously a very well-informed person. He's a businessman with international connections. As I say, he was one of the bankers in Italy. He corresponds with others. He, he's, he's the opposite of uh, unsophisticated. In addition to being a very big Tamachacham. And he was a robe in a city. He wrote Piyutim, you know, all that stuff. Now, um, what he does is, he makes his plans. Um, he's not poor. This is very important. To make, you know, the old joke, which is not a joke. If you, how do you make a small fortune in Israel? Make Aliyah with a big fortune. Well, this part is true. If somebody from America or whatever wants to move to Israel, they'll be well advised to set themselves up financially. They don't have to depend on in Israel. So one meets sometimes in Israel people, Americans who made a successful Aliyah, meaning. They made their money over here, they invested and organized in such a way, and now they can go to Israel. It's like a Disneyland, you know. They don't require them making a, a living in Israel. They have the money coming from America for elsewhere. 
So that's nothing but a smart thing to do. So that's what the that's what he set himself up. And you see from his letters, he arranged with friends who were bankers and we would say today financiers to have his money invested in Italy with, with reliable people, and they should send him the profits from investments and so forth annually by a certain system, and it actually worked. Because you had the equivalent of checks and things like that, letters of credit, even those days. And so uh, with that, he makes his trip to, to, uh, to famous trip to Israel, made Aliyah in the 1480s. Now, he ends up taking a long way, n- not the short way. The uh, people don't understand this. One of the big problems we have today with the corona is people make a chil Hashem. And they don't give a hoot, obviously. You know, they open the shoulder, they do this, they attack the police, who knows? If every, you know, you don't have to be nuts to be from, but it helps. And some of these people are, you know, are, it's Ava, you understand? There was a, the easiest way to make Aliyah in the 1400s was to go through Venice, which wasn't that far from where he lived. If you travel to Venice, the Venetians had a whole navy, they were great power at that time, and they had a whole system of bases and islands. And I happen to know this. On a typical trip to Venice, assuming that things don't go bad, it's 11 days. So to go from Venice to Beirut, which is next to Israel, is 11 days. Fine! It's less than two weeks. Uh, and the Venetians even had ships with oars, you know, in case there's no re- uh, wind. Uh, you know, And they went from base to base, you know, all down the Adriatic, and then they controlled in Greece and in, in Crete and Cyprus and so forth. Now... The problem is, a uh, two things happened that messed it up. There was one was just stupid, stupid, and the other one was just stupid. Apparently, there was some Catholic priest or whatever, uh, Italian, who was walking in Jerusalem in the 1400s, and some frummy spit on him. He must have been walking through the equivalent of the Jewish neighborhood. After all, it's a Muslim rulers, so you can't spit on a Muslim; you can spit on a Catholic. Who told you to do this? This got back to Venice. All hell broke loose. And they put a boycott. No no Jews on the ships. You know, they won't take any Jewish passengers. Thanks a lot. Knowing that, Jews were thrown overboard from Venetian ships. This was spontaneous. So this idiot caused uh, so much trouble for other Jews. Of similar lines, the Bartuna writes this. There was a building that was believed to be on top of the tombs of the kings of Yehuda. I don't say it's true, it's not true, but that's what they thought. And um, it was ruled by Franciscan monks, the Christian order. And apparently some Ashkenazi Jew, well-meaning, but, you know, Das Balabat, the main Das Torah, he didn't ask anybody. And he went to the Muslim ruler and said, I want to buy the building. It should be a Jewish thing because there are the kings of Yehuda underneath. Well, the Muslim ruler said, oh, if the kings are underneath, we'll make it a Muslim place. And so he kicked the Franciscans out, but he didn't give it to the Jews, it became an Arab place. So, Yashikoch of Noach. And again, this caused a lot of hatred in Italy, in Venice, for the Jews, and caused a lot of trouble. So for these reasons, he couldn't take the normal route to Bartonor. So, I know you're not good in your geography, most of you, but just take it from me. Get a map and look, you'll see, to go from Italy, from Venice down the Adriatic, into the Mediterranean, it was, it's 11 days. Instead, it took him two and a half years. That's right. And the reason is because um, 
he went down the other side of Italy, not the Adriatic side. No, there's not the side of Italy facing Israel, but the side of Italy facing the Atlantic Ocean. He went to Naples, and then he spent months here, and then he got a ship and took months there, and spending a lot of time on the way in Sicily. So he was in Naples, then in Palermo, and Salerno, and Messina. Now, uh, we know this because later on when he got to Israel, he wrote a letter to his father and described this all, which I'll talk about in a minute. And uh, he's a brilliant writer. It's very well known. He's among the best epistolary literature, uh, as is known. And uh, the result is that uh, we have a wonderful uh, record of what the Jewish communities were like in uh, southern Italy and in Sicily in this era, you know. Shabbos, they don't keep so much, but Yai and Nesach, they're extremely uh, Nizaron. You know, there's a typical Jewish uh, eccentricities. And uh, most of the girls are pregnant by the time they have the chasanation. He's got all kind of details there, my goodness. Anyway, so uh, he spends a long time in these places to finally get the right ship. He took a French ship, I remember. And then they traveled... Uh, this long route, and he doesn't go to Israel, go to Egypt. First he stops in Rhodes, the island of Rhodes. Um, I forgot this part. Jonathan Marvin reminded me of that. Uh, and I looked it up. And there in Rhodes, he's described as a wonderful heir. He said they have the most beautiful Jewish women in the world. Only Italian rabbi would write like that. <laughs> and from there he ends up going to Egypt after spending months here and months here and months there. So it was a long business. And he ends up uh, getting right near Egypt, and there is a, this. You can make a movie from this. In fact, I'm sure one day they will make a movie. If anybody wants to make a, a from movie, I'm serious. You know, one of these. Sometimes they do these things. You do the Adventures of Bartonur, and I mean it to be serious. If you read the letters, because the ship came near Egypt, but the Egyptians wouldn't let them in, and so they wanted to get off the boat, and they were a small boat, and then a storm hit, and they're bailing for dear life, and they the and and the, the boat almost sank, and they were in a terrible situation. And finally, they survived the storm, and then they ended up on land, and they had to walk 18 miles to get to Alexandria. He had his adventures. And uh, I mention this because this is what it takes if you want to make Aliyah once upon a time. It's not like getting on a plane and landing there. You have to be really committed. And uh, in Egypt, and in all these places where he stops, in Sicily and elsewhere, at least the way he describes it, he always is very successful in his human relations. He comes to the towns and he sees they have a lot of Averis, because Jewish communities have Averis. As I said before, in the sexual area, in the, in, in the drinking area, and other areas, and especially Malshinim. But he was always asked, and I know this feeling, not that I'm like that, but I mean, I, I know this, I've been in Italy and some other places where they never heard somebody give a speech, and if you give a speech like that, it really blows them away. That's who he was. He came to these places. He didn't really have a him there or whatever. I don't know. And he was a highly educated person, very sophisticated. So in Naples and in Salerno and Palermo, he spends a couple Shabbos there. And they asked him to give a speech in Shul. And then they fall in love with him. And they say, stay here. And he says, no. But he gives all these Moses Shmuzin. And he t- he ranks them out. And he says, you have to get your act together in terms of Gila, Rashvich, and and especially Moshinus. But... Apparently, he had the gift of the gab to do it in a way, how should I put it, he was one of the rare people, and this is a gift, 
who knew how to do tocher tochichizamisechov in a successful manner. I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly how he did it, but it seems that he made a, a nice rosham, and it's very old-fashioned Jewish. You know, while the rabbi's there, people get better. I'm sure when he left, they didn't. And so he warns him about Shabbos and about all kinds of things. But I'll repeat, he obviously knew how to do which we all know is, a, is an extremely rare skill. The Chazanish said nobody knows how to do it today. The Gemara says nobody knows how to do it. To do it in a way that actually gets the other person to be willing to change, that's not push it. And uh, he does this in Egypt also. And while he's there, by the way, he has this long description <laughs> of Shabbos, Friday night, they do it different over there, but everything is booze or wine. And, you know, before you, how's it go? Friday afternoon you go to the, the, to, to the bathhouse. And then you come home. And Mincha, they don't dominate in Shul, they dominate at home. And then, how's it go? And then they have the meal, the Shabbos meal, before Shabbos. And the Shabbos meal means 10 or 15, <laughs> you think I'm exaggerating, you drink several bottles of wine, each person at the table, several bottles of wine, with some fruit in the middle, and some uh, main course. And then, <laughs> and then everybody's in a happy mood, and they get dressed, and they go to Shul. And then they have a long Kabbalah Shabbos uh, uh, prayer, you know, with songs and everything. And this before the Dodi existed. They have a long Kabbalah Shabbos. And then they come back, and they make Kiddush. And then they eat a little bread to be Yotzi Kazayas, Motzi. And then they bench. And listen, by that time, everybody's stoned out of their mind. He even says themselves, you know, you're bombed. And the next day, Shabbos is also like that. Let me tell you something. A good time was that by all. My goodness. I tell you, his letters are fantastic. And he had good mazel also. And when he gets to, uh, this is like, a, you, know, you know, this is not your typical God story. And he, all the way, he has good mazel. Because on the ship, you know, the, the sailors got anti-Semitic, but he got off the ship in time and all that. And, um, and he brought money with him. I don't know how he was able to transport the cash. And um, he meets a guy in uh, Egypt who's like the head of the community, the big shot there, the Nagid. And remember, he himself is a member of the elite. So they know he's... Um, I don't say they knew each other before him, but, you know, they have a lot in common. They're both civilized people. He's not a Talmud Chacha like the Bartunor, but the other guy, Nasan Shul'al. These are the famous names of leading Egyptian Jews. And he himself was supposed to be the king's appointee, but he said, I used to live in Jerusalem, and they kicked me out even because the Jews there are so bad. Don't move. Stay here in Egypt. I'll support you. Make yeshiva. Everything will be good. And uh, the Bartonor says, no, I want to go to Israel. And he said, well, then I'll back you. I have a house there. I don't even live there anymore because they were so bad they drove me out. You can have the house for free. And uh, I'll support you. Now, back, he, he made a good friend. And the result is that um, he eventually goes to Israel when a, on a caravan. It's a long description. You have to read, I, I, I mean really, you have to read these letters. And he gets on a boat in the Nile River, and they take you up to the top of Egypt. And meanwhile, he passes what he thinks is the house of Yosef at Sadiq, 
and he sees for the first time crocodiles, and he said, now we know what Spiderman are, and uh, all, all this stuff. And he describes the economy. Egypt eventually gets to Israel, and by the time he gets to Israel, the Israeli, let me put it this way, he had big luck. What was the big luck? By the time he finished, the Malshinim had completely succeeded in destroying everything, and so even they saw the only way to go is up. Does that make sense? If nobody had money anymore, they killed and destroyed everybody had money who chased them out. They, they wrecked the whole place with gigantic machlokas. It's like a cancer. But by the time it's over, there's nothing to eat on, so the cancer dies. See, he came to Jerusalem at the right moment in 1488. Uh, even though there was a war going on. Uh, this is a, one of those obscure wars you never heard about. The Mamluk War against the Ottoman Turks. They had two or three of them, and there was one in the 1480s when he was there. But the Mamluks won, so it didn't affect Jerusalem so much, except in the following sense. The government really needed money. They saw that they messed themselves over by the overtaxation, and so the new Muslim rulers realized they have to be more logical, and they and they eased up on the taxes, and they switched, like I said before, to a head tax per person. It was much more fair, and so the economic situation began to improve exactly at the time he came there. And I told you before, he somehow or other had the great talent of He knew how to um, very nicely criticize people without them getting angry about it. And basically, he said that, um, listen, we've hit rock bottom. That's great. That means from now on we start moving up. (laughs) And instead of Three, four hundred families in Jerusalem, now they're only 70 and they're all poor and destroyed a bunch of widows. He said there's seven women to every man. It was a, he, he, the place was a train wreck. But that's okay. Meaning his attitude was listen, um, I'm coming here. Uh, I made Aliyah. I could sit and learn by myself. But I would like to help the Tibor. If you want, if not, I won't bother you. And he had more money than anybody else in town because they all destroyed each other. You don't understand how bad they were. They all mousing each other. They sold or gave away to the Arabs all the silverware of the Sefer Torahs and all that kind of stuff from the shoal. They stripped everything. It was a really bad element. And somehow or other, when he came there, he was able to establish good relations with the bad element and win their trust, and basically they said, we will follow you, because we can sort of see that our policy hasn't been successful. And under his guidance, they became better. So it's a quite a, a, a tat, an accomplishment. And from then on, they more or less agreed to follow his uh, you know, guide in how to build up Yushalayim and the whole Eretz row. And starting from his time, things started to get better. And when he came there, uh, he says, there wasn't even Heber Kadisha. He himself had to bury people. But that's okay. We'll get some people together. We'll explain the right way to do the Heber Kadisha, the Torah, and all the rest of it. We'll explain the Hashibah Sinem Indian. We'll start a, uh, a class of learning, you know, first once a week and then more. He will uh, give a drush every Shabbos, you know, and in Ivrit. He said they understood Ivrit. And uh, they fell in love with his uh, speaking style, he says. Listen, I hope he's telling the truth. He's talking about himself. But 
it seems from other reports that he did. That he did. And he is a rare case that he turned a bunch of real bums, Rishayim and terrible types into better people. Okay? Into better people. And starting from then on, Yushalayim starts to work up. The modern state of Israel, you can really uh, start the beginning of the beginning of the beginning from the Bartanur. Okay? And that's when a real Yishuv begins. Of course, it's a very small Yishuv, but within a short time, it was 1492. And if you know the history of Spain closely, even before 1492, they had started issuing expulsion orders from pieces of Spain. If you know the history of the 1480s. And so there were already, shall we say, escapees from Spain, or sometimes unseen Moranos running away from because their parents had been converted in 1391, the great-grandparents. So they're very unseen, and some of them come there. And it all comes together. So you have to have Mazel. He came there when the wicked Jews were already exhausted from being wicked, when the Muslim rulers were already exhausted from overtaxing and all that kind of stuff, they were in a better mood. Um, when Spanish Jews are starting to trickle in from Spain and they looked him to be the leader, and um, when the community itself and the government says, you're such a nice and chashav guy, we'll, we'll excuse you from taxes. So that's great. He had an income coming in from Italy every year. Came 100 ducats from this place and that. So in other words, poor he was not. He had a free house from that friend of his in Egypt. Uh, he didn't take advantage of this. You know what I mean? He's, he's sitting and learning and all that. Uh, but he, he promotes, let me put it this way. He successfully promoted a culture in which Malshinus is down and Achters is up and he appealed apparently to the best uh, side of people and that's the best thing a rabbi can do and therefore as a result of that he spent the next 25 years maybe more about 25 years because we don't know exactly when he died but something like that uh, working to build a Israel in Yushalayim and he started yeshiva there. As I say, the boy, some boys, when they're kicked out of Spain in 1492, that's a place you can go if you want to live there. He even says that for some reason, he had good health, because most people, especially Italians, Ashkenazim, when they come to Israel, get sick. From the water, from the malaria, from all this stuff. And a lot died in those years. And he didn't have no trouble. So, you see, you know, if, if I wanted to put a from spin on this, a meta historical to see, he was willing to put up with all the junk of moving to Israel, but the result was that once he got there, things were good, and therefore he had a happy life. Now, obviously, the person I'm talking about is mainly dealing in this part of the world with, and this is my opinion, I'm sharing my opinion here. That was leading scholars, there were some, with what I would call Balabatim in the best sense of the word. Uh, people who don't know anything, but you start them. And so clearly, he put a lot of class in the Chumash and Rashi, which is why he composed the commentary in Rashi, Dominique. He also um, put a um, emphasis into teaching Gemara and Halacha and that sort of thing. This is when he writes, or he concluded, the, the, the book that made him famous. Now, of course, this is Big Pirish on the Mishnahs. Because Bartanur is synonymous with being the Rashi on the Mishnah. Agreed? And uh, 
he started this, they say, in Italy, but he obviously finished it in Yerushalayim. And this is so classic from him. The way I understand him, which is all I can ever give you, is now he's dealing with people that he had to start from scratch, and even the ones that came from Spain and Ashkenaz later on, I don't think were world-class scholars, but he was. And the first thing you realize is, with a balabatim of a certain type, learning Gomorrah is a waste of time. On the other hand, you could do Mishnahis. But remember, in his time, there was no commentary in the Mishnah. Not a complete one, not a whole one, except for the one by Rambam. And that was in Arabic, Judeo-Arabic, and was very poorly translated. Right? It started to be translated, I think, in the 1400s. And, you know, the Rambam's Pierce the Mishnahis, which is great, has its pluses and its minuses. And uh, the pluses are, of course, his wonderful synthesis. But, uh, you know, the Rambam goes from the claw to the prot. Rashi goes from the prot to the claw, you know, in terms of learning style. And what the Bartonur undertook to do as a wonderful educator, as a machanach, was to compose this famous commentary, which is, after all, a mixture, a mishmash, but in a good way, a nice cholent of the three big commentators on the Mishnah out there that you can pull from. One is the Rambam. He definitely uses the Rambam's Pirish nice, no question about it. Uh, he also uses Rashi from the Gemara. Anybody who's familiar at all with the Bartunur Bar knows that as you go through the Gemara, you know, you'll have a Mishnah and a followed by a Gemara. So sometimes Rashi will explain a passage in the Mishnah, and sometimes Rashi won't. Or he'll say later on, So the Bartunur very cleverly said, enough to reinvent the wheel. If Rashi, on a passage in the Mishnah, gives a, a good shot, that's what I'll use. And then he incorporated that. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of times Rashi skips or says, wait till you get in the Gemara. So now you have to know the Sogib. The Bartunur was a god so he knew Babu Shami and all that kind of stuff. And the Tosefta and the other business, because remember, he did Shisha Sidri Mishnah, including Zroim and Tyrus and all the rest of it. So, um, what he does is, of course, he then synthesizes what the Gemara says. Uh, and then, so you have a, a use of Rashi, and then his own stuff taken from the Gemara. Uh, like the Rambam, he always tells you what the halacha is, because the Rambam and the Pishrish Nine was very often, most of the time, interested in what's the final ruling, and he lifts, and the partner will put that in there also. And then, uh, when you get to those parts where Rashi doesn't talk about, like it's doesn't have Gemara, he uses the, uh, what do you call it, the Rash, the Rash Mishans, uh, you know, the Rav Shimshon ben Avram of Sons, who was the big Baltosus, who wrote on the non-Yeshiva stuff, who wrote on, on Taharas and Zeroim and all the rest of it. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, you know, if you if you ever learned those Mishnais, they have, you know, like in Tyrus or something like that. So you'll see on the side, Ram and Rash. The Ram is the Rambam's commentary, translation of it. And the Rash is from Shimshon Sons. If you have any experience with this, it's highly detailed. It's, it's it's like a Rashi of a certain sort. It's a little bit different. After all, the Rosh, we're dealing with here now with the Rajba, not the Rajba, as I always say. The Rajba is with Shimshon and Abram of Sons. The person, he actually wrote the Tosus. What we have now is a Kitzer of the Tosus Rajba. Again, not the Rajba, but the Rajba. So it was a great Bisham. And what he really shines at, besides the regular Tosus, is his commentaries 
on those uh, Taharis things and the Zerim things. And uh, I have some experience with this. Right now I'm doing with Steve Kaplan, doing the Tosefton, uh, going, trying to go through Tosefton Mikvos for a certain reason. And, um, of course, the coronavirus doesn't help with that. But uh, a lot of times you get these Tosefton, they're unbelievably obscure, and the Mepharshim are no good. If you take the trouble, I've found this, that if you take trouble to hunt around to find the right place in the Rosh, in the, in the commentary of the Rajbo, on the the uh, Mishnayis of Mikvos, you'll see he quotes and explains it to, to Sefta, and he's great. So all I'm trying to say is that the Bartanura uses basically three elements to make his chant. It's Rashi, it's the Rambam, and it's the Rash. Sometimes a little bit more, you know, but those are the three basic, at least as far as I know. I'm not the world's expert on Bartanura, but there are people no less than me about it also. And so um, all I can say is that he, uh, you know, pulled this thing off. Now, uh, I don't know exactly when he wrote it all up, but his nephew was able to publish it very early in the 1500s, in 1549, which is 30 years or so after he died. And we all know that the bartender took off and became bestseller, like from day one. Uh, here, let me stop for a second. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so he produced this commentary and it got published and from day one it took off you see everybody held of it because of its uh you know uh utility and the thing i like about it i mean everybody knows this is he's like rashi in the following sense he's clearly set himself a limited task and to be a good writer he was good at all these things to be a good writer you have to sort of define your mission and if he wanted to he was a world-class scuttle he could have written all these fancy uh, lumbus and pilpulum and all the rest of it. No question about it. He was of that le- level. And people write about him and to him. And you see, they all talk about him. People who knew him as, you know, being a god uh, and, and so on and so forth of the 15th century. Uh, so he could do that. He didn't write that, right? But like Rashi, he said, I want to keep it. So I want to write something for the average person out there to be able to access the Mishnahis. I, like, I want to do for the Mishnahis what Rashi did for the Gemara. Now Rashi did the same thing without getting too detailed over here. It was misunderstood by later generations. In my opinion, he defined his task, and it's to be so-and-so. It's, it's, it, you don't have to give the alumnus. Tr- to try to explain it to you, I would use the following marshal, even if it's not exactly the same, but something like that. Even the Art Scroll Gemara didn't set its task to do every Rebchayim. And every Orsameach, you understand? But rather, to tell you the plain shot. Now, the art school did a little more than that. But you see what I'm saying? They refrain from sharing all the fancy stuff there very often. At the most, they'll give a reference to it or whatever. Because otherwise, England's over self. And it'll be counterproductive because the average guy who reads it, certainly at early stages, doesn't need to know that. So the problem you always have is who is your audience and what are you writing? Uh, again, a little bit of a, a exa- uh, of an example. You know, the art scroll now came out with this elucidated mission, I think it's called, which is great. And uh, what about the other mission that he did? Turns out it's too detailed for a lot of people. Get it? If you're a scholar, it has a lot of alumnus there, a lot of, a lot, a lot of information. But they found that there's a market for a lot of people to just tell me the mission is plain, you know, plain in English. And that's why I recommended this, this new elucidated thing. It's very good. You know, because first get that level down. Get the shot. 
And then afterwards, you can build on that if you wish to. And so I think the, the Bartonur wrote like that. And he wasn't interested necessarily in showing his own stuff off, but rather making the Mishnais available to everybody. And with this, he accomplished an intellectual revolution. So the, the writing of the Bartonur commentary is an event in Jewish history, not an event in Jewish biography. Because from then on, it became possible. The same way Rashi revolutionized the study of the Talmud and made it possible for a broad public, the Bartanur did that for the Mishnah. We all know this. Um, and ever since then, you know, millions of people, I don't know, whatever, how many people, over the centuries, have studied Mishnahs with the Bartanur. And just think of this. It's developed at several levels. First of all, there's developed the people that cannot do Gemara. Get over it. But they could do Mishnahs. Second of all, um, to understand the mission is like a very important part if you want to understand the Gemara. Uh, third of all, the the, the Tanur I discovered many years it's the best tutor book. Uh, many years ago, I just started myself. Before when I do a Gemara, you know whatever Misachta, as you go from Mishnah to Mishnah, I just recommend this to people. When you get to a Mishnah, before you read it in the Gemara, take out a Mishnahis, go through the Tanur uh, you know, carefully, and, uh, you know, maybe you need that ikertosis yanta, you know, the basic partenura, and then you have a great idea of previews of comic attractions, you have a good idea of what's about to hit in the Gemara most of the time, and then when you read the Gemara, first of all, the verbatim stuff from Rashi you already saw in the partenura, you know, it's quite, so you're working backwards, it was very successful, in my opinion, from an educational perspective, educational point of view, and I've never regretted it. Anything, you know, learn with, with the Bartanur and then do the Gemara, the Gemara and the Rashi, or whatever. And um, it can be done. So it became part of the history of Kali Yisrael, and it became part of the revolution in the 1500s and 1600s that, uh, you know, the study of the Mishnahis became like a, uh, a big deal. And if you want an example of what I'm talking about, just compare the Mishnah with the Tosefta. The Tosefta was never Zoka to get a Bartanur. They had great scholars that went at it, but in the weird way, you know, in this very scholarly, alumnus way, and all, it's, it's, it's useless to 99%. The average guy out there ain't going to learn a Tosefta with the Chazdeh David, you know what I mean? That's not happening. But the average guy out there can learn the Mishnahis with the Bartanur. And even though, yeah, you, you know, there's always some places that you can always, you know, argue and all the rest of it. Well, great, that's what the Tosefta Yantar means. All the people came up. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, you see what I'm getting at. He created intellectual revolution. And from then on, it took 100 years, really, to be honest. It became universal wherever you go. There's a Hebrew Shas in every community, but there's also a Hebrew Mishnah. And uh, we all know the, the study of Mishnahis, just the study of Mishnahis itself is absolutely of fundamental importance. If you want to have a well-grounded uh, type of individual, and whoever doesn't set aside time in their schedule, whatever, for the study of Mishnah per se, uh, each one according to his way of doing it, but, you know, uh, is going to be lacking in the shlemus, I would say, for understanding the broad cult tar- cool. I think that's uh, simple. So to be a Rashi of the Mishnah is, is, um, is big. Now, I repeat, he could have done, you know, bigger stuff if, if he wanted to. Uh, and by the way, you know, it became like a... Uh, same thing happened with the riff. The Tosis Yontif, of course, critiques the Bartanurim. And a number of occasions, he criticizes him and disagrees with him, the same way Tosis did the Rashi. 
And then Yaakov Emden came along later and wrote Lechem Shamayim, in which he de- he defends the Vartanura against the criticism of Tosis Yontif. You know, it's what, like I say, happened with the Rift. Who was it? The, you know, this one criticized the Rift, the other one defended the Balamor criticized the Rift, the, the Ramban defended the Rift against the Balamor. You know, you have that sometimes in Jewish history. So the Vartanura became iconic. I think his commentary in Rashi is a lot less known, but the Mishnah, everybody knows. Ad Kach, they became hardwired in the Jewish culture. Said in the 20th century, when people tried to move the ball forward and try to bring a more modern commentary, Kahati is the most famous one, but Kahati is not the only one. There were a couple other guys that did it. Uh, you know, the real Frumis got angry. Oh, no, you have to learn only with the Bartonur. Now, I'm sure the Bartonur wouldn't say that, but, you know, became part of, uh, you know, being, uh, what should I say? Very black, 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 black. Uh, it's ridiculous, but I'm just saying that's what they do. I was once, uh, I remember the first time I was in Israel, a million years ago, I was on the street, and there was a Haskanah going on. And this is when they had real Haskanah, you know, when, the, when, the, when it was a different government under the labor government, you know, before Begin and, uh, uh, what do you call it? What was the whole Haskanah about? They were selling Kahati, it was against Kahati. <laughs> I was an American guy, I said, what's wrong with this? Uh, so the Bartonur you know, became like hardwired into the into the culture. Now this is pretty good. As a result, you know the old joke: What did you write? You write one book, but that one book was a bestseller. So the Bartonur basically, really, wrote like one book, but the one book was a bestseller. But for historians, uh, he also wrote um, a couple letters home. Apparently, he was a good. I mean, he he was an epistolary guy. He used to write letters back and forth. And when he left Italy, he left a father and brothers and friends, and they would correspond. And basically, the Italian ships would show up like once a year, and that's when the correspondence was done and the money was transferred. Because he had it all worked out. He was a sophisticated businessman. How he should keep his money going. And he kept track of what's doing in the Jewish world. There have survived three letters. A biggie and two smaller ones. And this is very well known for Jewish historians. The three letters of the Bartonor about his trips to Israel and his settling to his Aliyah and his Klita, as we'd say today. And they're classics. And they're classics of epistolary literature, Bichlal. And they're classics of Hebrew writing. He's a wonderful, fantastic writer. And they have been translated into English. So if you get, uh, if you go online, I'm sure it's online, there's a golden oldie called The Jewish Travelers in the Middle Ages, First Hand Accounts in which Elkan Adler, 100 years ago, Mamish 100 years ago, translated much of what he did. The Gearses and the letters are something of an issue, but uh, now, if, if anybody's interested in all, I don't know who I'm talking to, there's a guy, Avraham Yaari, who was a big librarian and a big bibliophile in Israel, a very good guy, and he wrote, he wrote Eretz Yisrael, and he did like the, the, the most scholarly and critical editions, and you know, um, so I'll bore, I, won't, uh, I won't bore you with all the scholarly details, but those are the most accurate uh, versions of the uh, uh, of the uh, letters of the Bartonora, and I would recommend everybody should read them. They're actually a lot of fun, and he describes every community he's in, and the Minhagim, like I said before, and the learning, and the not learning, and the drinking, and this, that, and the other, you name it. And uh, he's such a good writer. Everything's very interesting, and he describes what the base of Megish looks like, and what the, you know, Hebron, he later lived in Hebron for a while, but that's like, um, now, what's cute is, there's a connection with this, in terms of, what should I say, 
uh, Log Bomer stuff. I talked a couple, a couple weeks ago about the historicity of Log Bomer. So it's famous that people who write to defend the antiquity of the celebration of Log Bomer say, well, the Bartonor Bartino talks about it. He was there before the results. Bartonor was there in 1480s, 1490s. And he talks about um, going to Marone and uh, with torches and, and fires and this and that and the other. Uh, which was always interesting, like, you know, like, really, in the 1400s under the Mamluks? But it turns out that it's not true. If you read inside the correct edition, correct Girsa, he says there's a minhug to go to the 28th of year, which is tomorrow, I think, or the day after, to Shmuel Hanavi, because in the Shulchan that's the yard of Shmuel Hanavi. You know, we've all been in Shmuel, the, the, you know, Nebi Samuel, Shmuel Hanavi. Kever in Israel, that little thing. I mean, I can't go inside, but you know, you can. And, I mean, I'm a coin. And um, there they used to have pilgrimages. And those Jews would come on the yard to the Shmuel Navi and they would uh, burn fires and this and that and the other. Later on, people, probably deliberately, I don't know, changed. They said, no, he's not talking about Shmuel Navi on the 28th of the year. He's talking about Miron on the 18th of the year, when Olag Bomer. But it's not actually what he says. And his, he's writing to his brother, who's saying, tell me about, you know, when you go to Israel, I heard all these nisim and flows in this place and that place. And he's very rational. He shoots it down. He says, listen, I heard these things. I don't know if they're true. Baruch HaYodeo HaEmes, as he says, you know, there's the truth. Ain li hechra. I heard that women who go to Shmuel Navi you know, the, the childless women get pregnant, you know, I, I, you know uh, maybe yeah, maybe no. He's always very skeptical. And he says to his brother all the time, he says, listen, you hear stuff, you know, you have to discount everything 90%, especially in the from world. You have to discount everything 90%. Having said that, he meets Jews there from uh, Arabia, from Aden. You know, the Aden is in the south of Saudi Arabia. He thought that's gone Aden. That's what they thought. He said, if you go so and so many miles, you'll find the Zambatian and the Ten Lost Tribes which is all baloney, but he's just reporting what he heard. And he talks about the Falashas, believe it or not, and that there are battles taking place in Ethiopia against the Jewish kingdoms over there. This is a Prester John. It's always been of fascination for the historians to trying to get to, you know, is there any truth to any of this? That's a long schmooze that we not, need not get into over here. So I conclude by saying that the Bartonura is a very interesting type to me because he's always very commonsensical, he was a great writer, and as I say before, among Gedolim, not many people that I know of had the knack of to win the community over from, from wicked behavior to righteous behavior and get them to want to change. That's like a, that's a pretty good talent. And uh, you have to be very mellow, very balanced, and of course the big Talmachachim and all the rest of it. And uh, I think this makes him a fascinating um, historical figure, although there's always going to be a fact that we don't know that much about the personal life. But as I said before, um, if you try what I just said, next time you learn Gemara, first do the Bartonor inside, and then do the Bartonor, then do the Gemara and the Rashi, I think you'll find it useful. Anyway, I did. Take care.